Workers' Liberty, February 2023, Volume 3, Number 71, <coughs> Page 1. Running with the hare and riding with the hounds, James Connolly in World War One, by Sean McGammer. Uh, quotes by Vladimir Lenin. Um, a letter to Shlyapnikov, 11th of February, 1915. For us, both Francophiles and Germano Germanophiles are one and the same. Patriots, bourgeois or their lackeys are not socialists. The Bundists, for example, are for the most part Germanophiles and glad of the defeat of Russia. But in what way are they any better than Plekhanov? Both are opportunists, social sovereignists, only of different colours. Quotes by Patrick Pears, Christmas 1915, um, quoted by Liam McNulty in James Connolly, page 291. Connolly is most dishonest in his methods. In public he says the war is a war forced on Germany by the Allies. In private he says that the Germans are as bad as the British. End quotes. Then Workers' Fights, number 6, May 1968. Quotes, For years now his fate has not been that of a prophet outcast, but of the prophets embalmed. In Ireland, Connolly is the icon of all, and therefore the prophet of none. Hypocritical adulation on the left, bodlerization on the right. It is sometimes hard to see Connolly as he was. End quotes. James Connolly is one of the most admirable and admired Irish leaders in the last 200 years. But Connolly, as he really was, is not the Connolly of most of his biographers and historians, notably Desmond Greaves, an Englishman assigned by the Communist Party to Irish work 80 years ago, whose biography was published in 1961 and remains in circulation. More recently, more critical accounts have emerged, including Liam McNulty's new book. Connolly was as he was. Here I try to reverse some of the misinformation from Greaves and others. I come to harsher conclusions than Liam does in his book. On the 4th of August 1914, Europe entered World War I. It had been moving to war inexorably as it must now appear after Sarajevo, where on 28th of June, Archduke Ferdinand and his wife Sophie of the Austrian royal house had been killed by Gavrilo Princip, a member of a Serbian nationalist secret society. Austria responded with an ultimatum designed to be impossible for Serbia to accept. All the powers were tied together by treaties, some hidden from view, secret treaties, and they followed one after the other into the cataclysm of the Great War. Soon it was military impasse, and that also expressed the impasse which capitalist society throughout the world had reached. The socialist internationalist had foreseen this war, and in its basic in its Belsley, Basley Manifesto of 1912 had prepared for it. The Basley Manifesto quotes 
The International at its congresses at Stuttgart and Copenhagen laid down the following principle for the war against war. In case of war being imminent, the working class and their parliamentary representatives in the countries concerned shall be bound with the assistance of the International Socialist Bureau to do all they can to prevent the breaking out of war. In case war should break out, notwithstanding, they shall be bound to intervene for its being brought to a speedy end and to employ all their forces for utilising the economical and political crises created by the war in order to rouse the masses of the people and to hasten the downfall of the predominance of the capitalist class. The recurring threats of war are getting more and more critical. The nations of Europe are always on the point of being driven at each other without the slightest reason of real people's interest for such attempts on reason and humanity. The most important task of the international falls on the working class of Germany, France and Great Britain to demand from their governments an undertaking to refuse all support to either Austria or Russia and in every respect to observe a, a strict neutrality. Page 2. The greatest danger to European uh, peace is the artificially fostered animosity between Great Britain and Germany. The best means of removing friction would be an understanding between German, Germany and Great Britain concerning the arrest of the increase of their respective fleets and the suppression of the rights of capture at sea. This would make impossible an attack on Serbia by Austria and would finally secure peace to the world. To this end, above all, the efforts of the international movement must be directed. Congress urges the workers of all lands to oppose to capitalist imperialism the international solidarity of the proletariat. It warns the ruling classes of all states against intensifying by warlike expeditions the widespread misery caused by the capitalist method of production and emphatically demands peace. Let the governments not forget that in the present conditions of Europe and the state of mind of the working class, they cannot let loose a war without danger to themselves. It must be remembered that the Franco-German war resulted in the revolutionary movements of the Commune, that the Russian-Japanese war put into motion the revolutionary movements in Russia, that the competition in naval and military armaments has in England's and on the continent, increased class conflicts and caused enormous strikes. It would be madness if the governments did not comprehend that the mere notion of a worldwide war will call forth strong indignation and protest among the workers who consider it a crime to shoot each other down in the interests and for the profits of capitalism and for the sake of dynastic ambition and of diplomatic secret treaties. The proletariat is conscious of being at this moment the bearer of the whole future of humanity. In order to prevent the destruction of the flower of all peoples, which is threatened by all the horrors of wholesale slaughter, famine and pestilence, the proletariat will put forth its whole energy. Oppose thus to the capitalistic world of exploitation and the wholesale slaughter of the proletariat world of peace and the brotherhood of 
the peoples. End quotes. This, crit this text was criticised at the time and after war broke out for being perfunctory and for being vague on what the national parties would do, but there can be no question that the manifesto clearly foresaw the coming war and that it called on the working class parties to oppose and resist all the imperialist powers. This was indeed a case of the socialist international being, quotes, the bearer of the, bearer of the whole future of humanity, end quotes. Connolly's first position. Connolly acted at the beginning of the war on the Busley Manifesto against imperialism, all the imperialisms and against all the wars. Quotes. What should be the attitude to the working class democracy of Ireland in face of the present crisis? I wish to emphasise the fact that the question is addressed to the working class democracy because I believe that it would be worse than foolish and would be a crime against all our hopes and aspirations to take counsel in this matter from any other source. In the first place, then, we ought to clear our minds of all the political cant which would tell us that we have either natural enemies or natural allies in any of the powers now warring from, end quotes, from our duty in this crisis, Irish worker, 8th of the 8th, um, uh, 1914. Connolly was concerned with the prospect of famine or high food prices in Ireland. That never became an issue during the war. On the contrary, separation money for the families of the 200,000 Irish soldiers in the British army eased the poverty. Quotes, we must consider at once whether it will not be our duty to refuse to allow agricultural produce to leave Ireland until provision is made for the Irish working class. Let us not shrink from the consequences. This may mean more than a transport strike. It may mean arms battling in the streets to keep in this country the food of, for our people. But whatever it may mean, it must not be shrunk from. If Ireland will starve, that the British army and navy and jingoes may be fed. Remember, the Irish farmer, like all other farmers, will benefit by the high prices of the war, but these high prices will mean starvation to the labourers in the towns. But without these labourers, the farmers' produce cannot leave Ireland without the help of a garrison that England cannot now spare. It is the immediately feasible policy of the working-class democracy, the answer to all the weaklings who in this crisis of our country's history stand helpless and bewildered, crying for guidance when they are not hastened to betray her. Starting thus, Ireland may yet set the torch to a European conflagration that will not burn out until the last throne and the last capitalist bond and debenture will be shriveled on the funeral pyre of the last warlord. End quotes. Connolly was murderously critical of the politics of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, whom he mockingly called the advanced nationalists. He specifically opposed and mocked their support for the German warlord, a stance on the coming war which they had taken well before 1914. Quotes, 
The advanced nationalists have neither a policy nor a leader. During the Russian Revolution of 1905, followed, following the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-5, such of their press as, as existed in and out of Ireland, as well as their spokesmen, orators and writers, vied with each other in laudation of Russia and the vilification of all the Russian enemies of Tsardom. Japan was an ally of Britain. It was free, freely asserted that Russia was the natural enemy of England, that the heroic Russian revolutionists were in the pay of English government, and that every true Irish patriot ought to pray for the success of the armies of the Tsar. Connolly saw, saw, saw support for Germany in the war now beginning as much or, uh, as more of the same. Quotes, Surely the childish intellects that conceived of the pro-Russian campaign of nine years ago cannot give us light and leading in any campaign for freedom from the British allies of Russia today. It is well to remember also that in this connection since 1909 the enthusiasm for the Russians was replaced in the same quarter by his blatant propaganda in favour of the German warlord. The manhood of Ireland was pledged to armed warfare against the very power, that is Russia, of our power our advanced nationalist friends have wasted so much good ink in claiming. From the beginning, though, there was a contrast, if not a full contradiction. Connolly's articles in both the Irish Worker and the Glasgow Paper Forward were for Buzzley, but the Forward ones were more generous, more international and more wholehearted against the war and the Irish articles were particularly Irish and more tender towards Germany. There was not much for the Irish to do except not to follow the, the Home Rule Party advice and join the British Army and to prepare to resist the export of food from an island Connolly expected to be threatened with famine. And in the Irish worker... Quotes, should a German army land in Ireland tomorrow, we should be perfectly justified in joining it, if by doing so we could rid this country once and for all from its connection with a brigand empire that drags, uh, drags us unwillingly into this war. End quotes. The argument was presented in an illustration of the idea that Irish people had no natural allegiance to Britain, but it worked by asserting the preferability of an allegiance to the rival imperialism, Germany. Connolly's second position. At the start of the war, Connolly was full of praise for the internationalist rebel member of the German Reichstag and anti-war activist Karl Liebknecht. In response to a mistaken report, that Liebknecht had died resisting conscription into the war, he hailed <coughs> Liebknecht as our continental comrade, who had stood against, quotes, a, a world of imperial and financial brigands and cowardly trimmers and compromises, end quotes. Having stood against the whole imperialist world system and with the Besley Manifesto, having dismissed the automatic taking of sides against British imperialism, having mocked at the physical force of the Republican Party, 
the IRB for siding with Britain's reactionary friend Russia during the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-5 and for propaganda in favour of Germany since 1909. On 29th of August 1914, Connolly came out for the German autocracy. In a few weeks, he went from Basley and Karl Liebknecht to the pro-war majority of the Reichstag Socialist Party. On 29th of August 1914, in the Irish Worker paper of the Transport Workers' Union, he published The War Upon the German Nation, which sided in the war with one imperial camp, the German-Austrian, against the camp led by Britain and France. Connolly's new pro-German policy from 29th of August 1940 on onwards was already the line of the quasi-secret society and underground revolutionary party, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. The baseline IRB position was to consider none but Irish interests and therefore to side with Germany simply, page 3, because it was the power at war with Ireland's overlord Britain. Now new pro-German arguments were thought up, for example that developed by Sir Roger Casement, an interim man raised as Protestant and knighted for services to the British Empire, that it was better to have German imperialism destroy British imperialism's position as a great power of the seas, which it had been since the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 at least. Germany, so Casement and others thought, was challenging British monopoly in favour of freedom of the seas and of everybody else. In fact, the idea that Germany would not displace Britain in the imperialist hierarchy, but instead bring an age of world naval benevolence, was a fantasy of self-aggrandisement and pious Irish nationalist wishes and hopes projected on to the real imperialist Germany. In the War Upon the German Nation, Connolly adopted Casement's view that progress lay in the, in the choice of one imperialism over the other, in the victory of the German Empire over the British. Connolly shifted into positive and active support for German imperialism. This was not a modification or adjustment or a mere acknowledgement that Basley was being supported by the socialists of only half a dozen countries. It was a straight reversal, though not a clean one, as, we sh as we'll see. You can't expect, in empty words, be both for the Reichstag anti-war member Karl Liebknecht and for the German minority Rosa Luxemburg, Franz Meering, Clara Zetkin and others, and at the same time for the war and the pro-war majority Reichstag deputies of the SPD, who would eventually kill Liebknecht and Luxembourg and their comrade Leo Georgiches. The banner on the Irish Transport Union's Liberty Hall said, quote, We serve neither king nor kaiser but Ireland, end quote. But the operative word was serve. Connolly served, he thought, Ireland, not the Kaiser. But serving Ireland came to mean to Connolly and his comrades helping Germany. 
They adopted the long-held position of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, helping England's enemy would serve Ireland's. Connolly had called all imperialism, including German imperialism by name, international brigandage. In his period as a propaganda skirmisher for German imperialism, he pointed to British imperialist hypocrisy in denouncing the imperialist misdeeds of the, its enemy, yet he supported the Germans in theirs, if something evasively, if sometimes evasively and mealy-mouthedly. Connolly on Belgium and Serbia. Austria shelled Belgrade <coughs> on the 28th of July and the war started on a larger scale with Germany invading Belgium on the 4th of August. Later, James Connolly would rewrite the invasion of Belgium as it might have been, but for the misdeeds of Belgians, fr France and Britain. It could have been a quiet, non-killing, non-destructive episode in which the Belgians had peacefully made way and let the Germans through Belgium to get at France. The real invasion of Belgium was the destructive slaughter of many Belgians. In Louvain, a city of 48,000 people with a medieval university, in a few days in August 1914, the German occupiers killed 248 people, some of them hostages, deported 1,500 to Germany, destroyed one-fifth of about 11,000 houses in Louvain, looted gold, silver, jewels and liqueur, and deliberately burned the university's medieval, medieval library to the ground. That was not normal for the times, even in warfare. On the other side, it was not ridiculously compared to a typical incident of the early 17th century Thirty Years' War, which had left much of Germany in ruins for two-thirds of three generations. The Irish Home Rule Party, with which Condley had competed through the Labour Party and in the Labour War, and which the IRB denounced as not nationalist enough, was much exercised by little Catholic Belgium and, the and its parallel to Ireland. The Germans were understood to be acting deliberately on the military theory that to subdue a country they had to make the civilians too feel thoroughly defeated. And as a relatively young imperialism they believed they should demonstrate the imperialist earnestness and ruthlessness so that the others would take them seriously. Yet Connolly defended <coughs> this occupation and what went with it in, for example, Louvain. Connolly told a preposterous story to explain Louvain that French soldiers, Belgium's allies, were in a chapel and fired on the Germans in some perverted battle lines, Irish worker, 26 September 1914. As an explanation of what happened in Louvain, when the Germans took over, this is not true. If anything like the incident described by Connolly happened at all, it was falsely dragged in so that Connolly could rehearse the story of earlier French government anti-clericalism. In other words, Connolly replied to the true accounts of Germany's invasion of Belgium by denouncing a France now at war with Germany. Quotes 
For a generation, the French government has made war upon the secular power of the Catholic Church in France, exercised its power with such relentlessness that many religious orders abandoned the country and removed themselves and all their belongings to Ireland, America, Belgium and other countries. End quotes. Moreover, once revolutionary France had been corrupted and took part in the war only because of its quotes, money lenders that they might not lose the money they lent to the Tsar, end quotes. Notes on the front, Workers' Republic, 23rd of October 1915. Connolly was <coughs> repeating or inventing German propaganda. No one who knows the realities of imperialism, as Connolly did, and had concern for the truth, would have said what he wrote about German imperialism, British imperialism, or inter-imperialist war. Belgian Catholic refugees were public, publicised and visible in Britain and in Catholic Ireland. In Allied propaganda, much was made of them and of the history of the German anti-Catholicism. Nothing was made of the recent, early 20th century conflicts between the French state and the Catholic Church. Then again he blames Belgian civilians. Quote, when we are told of the horrors of the Belgian city of Louvain, when the only damage was the result of civilians firing upon German troops and buildings, which those troops had in consequence to attack, I remember that in South Africa Lord Roberts issued an order that Whenever there was an attack upon the railways in his line of communication, every Boer house and farmstead within a radius of 10 square miles had to be destroyed, end quotes, from the Friends of Small Nationalities, Irish Worker, 12th of September 1914. This was untrue about Louvain, and it was an exercise in explaining away one imperialism by another, implying that Germans were justified, Germany was justified, the same logic would imply justifying by the misdeeds of others British imperialism in South Africa or even in Ireland. It was as strange for an Irish nationalist as for an anti-imperialist to justify Louvain and the suppression of Belgium, a small nation by its larger German neighbour. If you took sides in the war just according to the immediate issues, ignoring the broader world framework which the socialists had described in advance in the Busley Manifesto, then you would side against Austria with its drive to destroy the independence of Serbia and against its enabler Germany, which had invaded and occupied Belgium and a part of France. Yet Connolly explicitly justified the occupation of Belgium and the killing of Belgian civilians who resisted. Who was to blame? Not the invading German army, but the stupid Belgian ruling class who resisted, or England, or the French. Appealing to the Irish not to resist a German invasion of Ireland and instead to do as he had said the Belgians should have done, Connolly wrote, quotes, Will Ireland allow her sons to be sac sacrificed by the same <coughs> unscrupulous power that English capitalism may rise by garroting the civilization and commerce of Europe? No, a thousand times no. No man <coughs> to whom Ireland 
and Ireland's interests are dear will ever draw a sword or fire a shot in any quarrel of England's making, end quotes, from How England Sacrificed Belgium, Irish Worker, 17th October 1914. In this argument, Connolly was not against either war or Germany. He was appealing to Busley, but only against one side in the war. Here, capitalism <clears throat> was one-sidedly identified with England, while Germany was equated instead with civilization and commerce. In his article in the war, as far as I know, Connolly never referred to the German ruling class as distinct from Germany as a whole. He sketched a largely nonsensical economic history of Europe in which Germany was on the defensive, fighting with guns to stop England strangling its industry largely by economic means. Connolly had made a radical shift since the outbreak of war in his expectations and ideas of German imperialism. Belgium had been left in the lurch, he wrote, because the UK had inveigled Belgium into its war to crush Germany, German industry and then didn't send British soldiers or didn't send enough of them from how England sacrificed Belgium. But then <coughs> the UK shouldn't have sent sufficient troops anyway because neither Britain nor Belgium, England's pawn, should have fought Germany, which was right, and only defending its industry and its industry's right to grow against England. Con Connolly remained determined, as Marxists always are, that there will be no talk of a humane war but he fended off criticisms of what Germany was doing. He was full of pity for soldiers caught up in the terrors and horrors of war. But you notice that he was writing only of Irish soldiers and giving them reasons why they shouldn't join the war against the German nation. In fact, there was serious fighting between the Belgians and the German army. But the Belgians' rulers, Connolly wrote, should have peacefully allowed German soldiers through Belgium to attack France, then Belgium would have had neither slaughter nor destruction. That is, Belgium should have aligned with Germany in its war on France and had only the Belgian ruling class to blame for the German invasion and occupation. Page 4. A more Pleasant, humane, unreal fantasy of war is hard to imagine, but it took the blame of Germany. It gives those who want it an imaginary alternative to what had actually happened, the horrible conquest and occupation of Belgium. It evaded the issues of what would come of Belgium should Germany win the war. Germany Chancellor Bethmann Holweg's September programme of 1914 foresaw Belgium becoming a permanent vassal state. All Connolly's comments were couched as much as possible in the old socialist and humane anti-war terms, but it was all one-sided, either directly or indirectly pro-German. It was another version of old wine in new bottles. In blunt English, Connolly's politics on the war were two-faced hypocritical or jesuitical. His opposition to the war was what would later be called fake left. 
Short of being a native German chauvinist, he was as much for German imperialism, no matter what, as he could be, as much as the right-wing German social democrats were. And in Connolly's case, because he imagined Ireland's freed, freed from Germany's victory, while lamenting the horrors of war for Irish people fighting for England, he said, nothing I can find against what the Austro-Hungarian Empire had done to Serbia with its ultimatum and its invasion leading to war in which one adult man in four in Serbia was killed. On the contrary, Connolly insisted ridiculously that only two empires in one Europe, England and Russia, stood Quotes, alone in the unenviable position of suppressing non-existences and insisting upon small nations conforming to the mould in which those empires, these empires would cast them. End quotes. From some perverted battle lines, Irish worker, 26 September 1914. That much like that Connolly said after 29th of August 1914 was, I think, culpably mistaken. In a speech on the 30th of August, Connolly set out what he thought John Redmond, the leader of the Human Home Rule Party, should have said in Parliament. He, quotes, might have written and said, I and my colleagues will go to Ireland and consult the Irish nation. Then would Ireland be a nation in reality? We have waited and now Germany has come and we will start our own parliament. Stop us if you can. Help would have come from all sides. Why the Royal Irish Constabulary should have acted as a guard of honour. End quotes from Irish worker, 5th of September 1914. The Citizen Army Songs and Connolly's Third Position Sustaining the Irish Citizen Army formed during the Irish Transports Union's Great Labour War with the Dublin employers, was now one of Connolly's main concerns. The union itself had dwindled to a tiny membership, though it would revive in the latter part, later part of World War I after Connolly's death. The songs sung by the, citi- sung by the Citizen Army, reported in Margaret Skinner's 1917 book, Doing My Bit for Ireland, pages 221, um, uh, 230 and 237, sided clearly <coughs> with German imperialism against uh, against British. Quotes, "'Tis the Germans they're out to destroy me, boys. Whose prosperity <coughs> did so annoy me, boys? The great German nation has sworn their damnation.' And will echo the curse with a will, my boys. Good old Britain, rule the waves, and gobble up all the land. Bring out the blacks and Indian braves to jigger the German bands. When the Germans come to free us, we will land a helping hand. For we believe they are just as good as any in the land. End quotes. In his Irish papers, Connolly also became a vulgar pro-German propagandist. That was his second position on the war. In many international for 
or anyway non-Irish papers such as the Scottish Forward, which appealed in practice to British men not to fight Germans. Connolly <coughs> still had something of the internationalist that was his third position. The German majority socialist in Leibnacht. The Workers' Republic would report favourably on the views of right-wing German social democrats, but not on left-wing anti-war social democrats. On 4th of December 1915, Kaiser and Socialists, for example, it printed without comment the opinion of the ultra-pro-war German socialist Anton Fendrich, praising the, quote, the sincerity of the Kaiser's love for, for peace. I am convinced now, more firmly than ever, that he tried to avert the war up to the last minute. Nobody can expect that the views of the Kaiser are those of a radical or socialist, but there is no doubt that he understands the aims of the radical left in Parliament far better and has more sympathies with them than the world knows. End quotes. It was not... It was necessary to counter the British demonization of the Kaiser, not with such lies and nonsense about the Kaiser and the German state. And Connolly did not, after his early praise for Karl Liebknecht in 2028-1914, though again 16th of the 1st, report the stance of German socialist opponents of Germany's war. In 1915, he approvingly reported the internationalist Seimer-Waltz conference in Workers' Republic, 25th of December 1915, but Seimer-Waltz had been against all the imperialisms, and Connolly reported only the French delegate's stance. He did not even let readers know that German delegates attended, that there was German socialist opposition to the war. The manifesto of Zimmerwald and other details had been promptly available three months earlier in the Independent Labour Party Party's Labour leader and even in the British Socialist Party, still pro-war justice. But Connolly did not report them. The consequences of 1914. What happened in 1914 was of tremendous importance then and after. It shaped world history for the next 100 years and more. If the Socialist International had been guided by its vow in the Buzzley Manifesto to oppose and fight all imperialisms and their great war that began in August 1914, then history would have been perhaps radically different. In fact, the German social democracy reneged, and after that, and partly in consequence, socialists in almost all the warring countries reneged. But not, it should be said, the Serbian socialists. They stood by Buzzle, even though they could reasonably calculate that Serbia, considered alone, would do better out of a British-French victory. If the socialists had st stood firm, then the socialist movement would not have split into communists and social democrats, as in fact it did. The socialist revolution would not have been limited, as it was, to Russia, a backward country, 
radically behind advanced capitalism and therefore, though ripe for workers' revolution, radically unripe for socialism. The hope of immediate socialist revolution in an, in an advanced capitalist country like Germany would not have been defeated. Totalitarian Stalinism would not have triumphed as it did in the backward Russia of the 1917 revolution. Stalinism would not have taken control of the communist international in the early 1920s. What socialism meant to the mass of socialists would not have been radically redefined as it was going from Marx's conception of socialism as necessary, the product of the level of production in advanced capitalist society to socialism in one country. The development of very backward Russia towards the levels attained by advanced capitalism. It would not have gone from scientific socialism to developmentalism to socialism as the development of backward areas of the world as Stalinism of varying sorts. Mussolini's and Hitler's fascists would not have taken their states. The Stalinist <coughs> Great Russian Empire in the USSR and after the end of World War II in Eastern and Central Europe would not have been conquered and consolidated. The atomic era would not have come upon a hum humankind still bogged down in the terrible contradictions of class society. Capitalism would not have consolidated in the advanced West as it did after 1945, nor is it would do further on a world scale 50 years later with the fall of European Stalinism. We would not have socialism obliged to win its way once again from the near from near the level of the, its beginning and having to unlearn much that it had learnt in the decades of Stalinism. What happened in 1914 was of tremendous importance. It shaped the world's history for more than a hundred years after. Moving to the IRB tradition. Connolly <coughs> moved to the tra tradition of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the underground physical force, advanced nationalist party, which had existed since 1858 and had revived in the years before 1914. That corresponded to no Marxist tradition that Connolly had ever had anything to do with, though something like it came briefly into existence in parts of the Communist International in the early 1920s and four decades later in Guevarism. It was, of course, itself rooted in the pre-Marxist radical tradition of Auguste Blanqui. The Arabes was a tradition which saw revolution as a matter of insurrection as soon as the armed forces for it could be mustered. Condoli had previously repudiated that tradition. He saw it as a disease that, quotes, Ireland occupied a position among the nations of the earth, unique in its great variety of its aspects, but in no one particular is this singular singularity more marked than in the possession of what is known as a physical force party, end quotes. In physical force in Irish politics, Workers' Republic, 22nd of February, 22nd of July, 1899. 
Yet it was that party which Connolly would join in spirit early in the war, formally from January 1916. The Marxists in Connolly's time were essentially the evolutionists, the people for which history had to be ready, ripened, fructified for socialist transformation to be possible. In labour in Irish history, Connolly had drawn, quotes, the vital truth that successful revolutions are not the product of our brains, but of ripe material conditions. And in 1908, in America, in his verse on the dying socialist to his son, quotes, wait and watch through galling years the ripening of time, yet deem to strike before that hour were worse than folly, crime, end quotes. Perhaps at that time Connolly was being restrained against some of his Irish nationalist instincts by Marxist truths. Until about 1908, Connolly had in general been restrained by Marxist ideas in a way he would thereafter progressively learn to do without. The German Marxists with whom James Connolly had spent his political youth had been pro-Irish, but no absolutist of the fullest separation. They advocated what Marx had advocated, legislation, independence for Ireland, in short, the affair of 1782, only democratised. What part did Connolly's Irish republicanism, which he may have picked up from his British soldiering days in Ireland, and from Maud Conn, play in his overall politics before he turned towards the IRB's version of republicanism, positive support for all enemies of Britain, and once Britain was at war with those enemies, insurrection as soon as the forces could be mustered. Pre-1914, republicanism was a radical anti-monarchism and a fierce anti-British stance in the Boer War. It tended to make an absolute, a self-to-self absolute, ultimately and above all else absolute, of Irish nationalism, but it had no central practical meaning before the war gave nationalism republicanism by the definition of the Catholic nationalist people a new meaning. Page 5. Connolly had a number of successive attitudes or policies on the war, sometimes flatly contradicting each other, but there was no amalgamation, no equal combination between Connolly's previous Buzzley socialist politics and the IRB attitude he moved to. What resulted was a form of politics in which IRB nationalism took over socialism and pushed it aside. Republicanism and Socialism in Connolly How James Connolly's republicanism and socialism had fitted together had never been clear. In 1896-1903, Connolly had talked about socialism in Ireland and the development of the Irish economy. Since his return from seven years in America to Ireland in 1910, Connolly had advocated and practised home rule reformism, a focus on developing an Irish Labour Party which would press for reforms through the new Irish Parliament. The strength of the divisions in Ireland over home rule, the backtracking of the Liberals and the Home Rule Party, and the prospect of partition threw that perspective into question, in fact refuted and nullified it. 
Congolese first alternative in mid-1914 was British coercion of the anti-home rule north-east, which implied a large continuing role in Ireland for Britain. Connolly, before August 1914, was no absolutist of Irish nationalism. If the British would not prevent partition by coercing the north-east, then he was for no home rule at all rather than home rule with partition. Quotes, I'm not speaking without due knowledge of the sentiments of the organised labour movement in Ireland when I say that we would be, we would much rather see the Home Rule Bill defeated than see it carried with Ulster or any parts of Ulster left out. End quotes. From the exclusion of Ulster in forward 11 April 1914. What did Connolly expect in Ireland if Germany defeated Britain? The Liberal government, backed by the Home Rule Party, reneged on coercing the Irish Unionists into United Home Rule Ireland. But what better could, would Germany have wanted to do, or tried to, to do, or been able to do, short of Belgium-level repression in the northeast to prevent partition? Germany could have given Ireland more than the British version of Home Rule did. Maybe, but to how much of Ireland? Coercion, German or British, did not go with an independent Ireland. Whatever role is seen as Britain's, as Britain's in the human Home Rule crisis, the fundamental opposition to Home Rule was from a part of the Irish people, a big part, and one defined way by James Connolly. The attempt to transfer from the British Empire to the German was questionable in purpose, full of German and Irish nationalist fantasy and wishful thinking. A German victory might have produced worse for Ireland than 1914 Britain would have without war. A new picture of Germany. Connolly said, whatever needed to be said or not said for the RRB's championing of Germany, which he had made his own. His new picture of German imperialism owed most of its not being British imperialism to its being at war with Britain. He became a narrowly <coughs> anti-British British, and because of that pro-German agitator, and he was not at all scrupulous. What he wrote was not a true picture of what he knew of Germany. Germany was Ireland's opportunity to strike against Britain. By virtue of being the chief imperialist antagonist to the British Empire, it was cast first by the ROB, then by Roger Casement, and then by Connolly, in a role it did not play in life. The central idea that the German Empire could destroy the British Empire on the high seas and bring a benevolent freedom of the seas was a fantasy of a non-imperialist imperialism defeating British imperialism. It was not an idea of eliminating imperialism for something better and higher, but a foolish small bourgeois and small nation thought of rolling the film of capitalist development back to an earlier, now irrevocably past stage. Germany was to be the vehicle for this fantasy self-renewal. 
for anyone in 1914, it was a fantasy. For a Marxist, it was a shift from working-class internationalism to a small bourgeois and nationalist outlook projected onto Germany as a fantasy protagonist. Even if Germany had played the role for Ireland ascribed to it by the IRB, then Casement and then Connolly, that would inevitably have been at the expense of other countries. There could be no real anti-imperialism that was not against all the empires. That had been the point of the Basley Manifestos and Connolly's previous opposition to all imperialism and not just to one imperialism. But now Connolly, even in retrospect, sided with Germany over Agadir, where it almost came to war in 1911, in uh, Diplomacy Workers' Republic, 6th of November 1915. At the time, he definitely had not sided with Germany. The plain truth is that Connolly <coughs> on World War One was a demagogue, playing on feelings and emotions to obscure the realities around him. Anti-Englandism as absolute. The absolute all-overshadowing hostility to Britain, England, made as little sense as the illusions in Imperial Germany, or perhaps religious, Catholic and historical sense, but not current political sense. Ireland's history at the hands of different Englands way back to the French-speaking Normo-Anglo-Angevin Empire in the middle of the 12th century, which began the lasting conquest of Ireland, was a terrible one, but it was history. Unless to store a timeless Irish Catholic chauvinism, all that could be done with it was learn from it and try to undo some of its consequences. In fact, many of its consequences had been undone in the era of the reforms Britain had been put, had been pushed into since 1989. Connolly himself had recently summed up the socialist case against a narrow nationalist response. Quotes, We are told that the English people contributed their help to our enslavement. It is true. It is also true that the Irish people contributed soldiers to crush every democratic movement of the English people. Slaves themselves, the English helped to enslave others. Slaves themselves, the Irish helped to enslave others. There is no room for recrimination, end quotes. From Labour and Nationalism Irish Worker, 29th of November 1913. He wrote that when the British Labour movement, largely the English, was keeping the Irish Labour movements afloat in the Dublin Labour War. Considering the nature of the terrible story, that might be thought pious, but it was true, the only possible truth. Factually, Britain's role in Ireland was by 1914 not, or no longer, that of absolute suppression of national existence evoked by Connolly. Beginning a decade after the famine, a long era of reform from above had radically changed and was changing. Ireland, changing Ireland. The Anglican Church was established in 1869. By 1914, the land was largely transferred from big landlords to peasants, and the changeover continued after that. Local councils were set up in 1898. One big 
British Party was committed to all Irish self-government, Home Rule and the other, the Tory Unionists, vied with it to kill Home Rule with kindness. European Marxists like Karl Reddick thought, and Home Rulers like John Dillon feared, that reforms in Ireland were killing the potential for Irish revolution or of Home Rule. We now tend to have the impression of calm and steady progress and of an entirely quiescent post-Parnell Home Rule Party. In fact, there were many conflicts and battles on the land, cattle driving, districts put under martial law, Home Rule MPs and others routinely served short jail sentences for breaking martial law in proclaimed districts. In the 1860s, it was the then large Fenian movement that helped frighten the authorities into reforms. The Home Rule leaders were devoted at Westminster to the Liberal Alliance to which they looked for Home Rule, but at home it was pretty common for them to celebrate the old physical force to be celebrated. Quotes, if not the ballot and Westminster, then we shall we will unsheathe the Fenian sword. End quotes. It was the Home Rule Party, in much conflict with James Connolly and such as W. B. Yeats, that controlled the celebrations of the seventeen ninety eight centenary, and that covered Ireland at the end of the nineteenth century with maid or Erin monuments in memory of the Fenian. Manchester Martyrs of 1867, Ellen Larkin and O'Brien. Home Rule writers like P.J. McCall, who stood against Connolly in a 1902 council by-election, wrote popular and influential songs such as Kelly the Boy from Killane. A great deal of Catholic nationalist culture passed from the Home Rule Party and the AOH into the page 5, into the later dominant Sinn Féin and the future independent Ireland. In the years up to 1914, Conley had accepted the late 19th and early 20th century as an era of progress in Ireland, taking Home Rule as the likely settlement or the first settlement, but Quotes, no one can set a boundary to the march of a nation, end quotes, as Parnell put it, and focusing on reforms to be won within the frame of a not very powerful Irish parliament. The idea that the Irish would have got a better deal from Germany was at best speculative. First Germany had to win the war and then seriously be on the side of the Irish and then fight on that side to the satisfaction of the Irish nationalists. There was no reason to believe any of that in advance, no serious reason to believe that the Irish nationalists chose to believe. Against it was there concrete evidence that in the period up to the arising Germany showed little interest in intervening directly against Britain in Ireland, as distinct from promoting local trouble there. Roger Casement would land in Ireland on Good Friday to try to stop the rising because coming from Britain, Berlin, <laughs> he knew for sure there would be no serious German involvement. The whole German-Irish scheme was largely Irish 
make-believe governed by the settled hostility to Britain of the IRB rooted in mid-19th century Ireland's feminine mass migration and then mediated through the contradictory personality of James Connolly. In retrospect, after Easter 1916, what later happened at Easter 1916 and after what would come to cast its terrible beauty over the past, all the past. Connolly would become both a nationalist hero and doubly so because he was a national icon, an icon of the left. In retrospective accounts, Connolly's two antagonistic periods in the war, his Beslay period and his pro-German period, were amalgamated. Both were seen from the vantage point of Ireland's Catholic people's opposition to Britain and British imperialism as opposition to imperialism, though in fact Connolly and his friends had been emphatically on the side of the one empire, the Germans, against the other, the British. But there are at least two 1916s. There is the rising that challenged the greatest empire ever seen in one of its capital cities near home. It flooded around the world, served for for decades as a tremendous demonstration that imperialism could be challenged and beaten as the War of Independence of 1919 to 1921 was a demonstration of what could be done against imperialism by its victims. The War of Independence was a direct result of the 1916 Rising and the Republic proclaimed by the 1990 Dale a direct result of the Proclamation of 1916. The Rising also instructed anti-imperialist movements that came after negatively in that they used guerrilla war and did not seize cities and wait to be encircled as the Dublin insurgents had been. It was a manifestation of the anti-war stirrings that would grow and lead to widespread dissolution in retrospect with World War I. It was a tremendously progressive event for world politics what H.M. Heinzmann called, after the Paris Commune, the, quotes, the Commune of Dublin, end quotes. It was endorsed by Vladimir Lenin as a harbinger of what the war would provoke in opposition to itself. It led to and shaped the Communist International's 1920 thesis on the national and the colonial question. That was the rising that happened and it, its effect on the world. Then there was the rising that had been planned as a mass widespread action supported and in large part led by German officers with extensive German military resources. That would have made Ireland not as the rising which actually happened did a symbol of anti-imperialist revolt but a theatre of the imperialist great war. You can use a hard word like hypocrite or try for a softer word to describe James Connolly's politics in the war after 29th of August 1914. Inconsistent would be true, but it would not even start to cover it. So would incoherent. It was roundabout pro-imperialist, pro-German imperialist by way of one-sided hostility to British imperialism. 
The truth to repeat is that James Connolly played the demagogue after he chose the German Empire against the British on the 29th of August 1914. He pretended to be an internationalist, but in that phase he was not. A justification. The French and Belgian socialists who turned defensists, van der Veltz, Guster, Herve, etc., did so in response to German, Germany's invasion of their own countries and the acquisition, acquiescence in that of German social democracy. Connolly turned supporter of Germany and Austro-Hungary and apologist of their warlords and their invasions out of opposition to British imperialism, apparent accommodation to the IRB and a fanciful picture of a future world in which German imperialist victory would have ended imperialism or given Ireland a more favourable position. Connolly's switch was very sudden, seemingly a matter of a change in political estimation and the directives and arguments that went with it, rather than flowing from deep conviction. Could a switch from international socialism to Irish nationalism have been right in the circumstances? Not for a Bosley anti-capitalist, an opponent of imperialism as a whole, and only of British imperialism, Supporting Irish nationalism against British imperialism was not the same thing as backing German imperialism against British. For the IRB, whose politics began and ended with Irish nationalism, Irish nationalism was always in first place. Anything that seemed to serve Ireland was justified. The IRB entered and manipulated other suitable organisations to serve its versions of Ireland and Ireland's cause. But for Connolly, the Busley Manifesto man, who knew about German imperialism as, as well as about British and other imperialisms, there was no co commonality of Connolly's pro-Busley anti-war phase and the pro-German phase that followed. In positive politics, from his article of 29th of August to his death, Connolly was entirely and emphatically for Germany's war, up to and beyond justifying Germany's atrocities in Belgium, for example. Sorts of internationalism The nature of Connolly's nationalism and internationalism is what was wrong with it, as with that of his original mentors John Leslie and H.M. Hindman of the Social Democratic Federation, SDF, later British Socialist Party, BSP. For Leslie and Hindman and for Connolly, internationalism was the sum of the, international, of the nationalisms. Hindman and perhaps two in every three British Marxists supported the war in 1914 as a policy police action against Germany. They were not modern internationalists, as it was formulated after the experience in 1914 had shown the deficiencies of the previous understanding. Hindman was a sort of a traitor, but nothing about it was straightforward, and he and his comrades were not vulgar traitors. True, Hindman had and was known to have some traditional Tory prejudice for Britain, some of Hindman's outlook 
was a typical among socialists and was commented on long before 1914. Hindman was a bit odd, but not outside of the typical pre-14 socialist idea of internationalism, and the same essentially with James Connolly. Much that Connolly said was a repetition of Hindman on opposition to British imperialism in India, for example. Hindman and his friends were consistently in favour of democracy in the empire and against colonial rule in India and Africa. They were pioneers of home rule in Ireland from their beginning in 1881 when the Irish Land League and Parnell's Parliamentary Party were in open rebellion and supporting them carried risk. The Democratic Federation, as it was first named, was formed in opposition to Gladstone's unjust coercion of Ireland in 1881. They were home rulers for India too. Hindman denounced British rule in India as ruinous and wrote, quotes, White capitalist rule now doomed to an early overthrow will seem to be a short and hideous nightmare in the long and glorious life of India. Upon the withdrawal of the English, the Indians will begin afresh their, their old career of internal development side by side with the other progressive peoples of the world, end quotes. They generally advocated, quotes, legislative independence for Ireland, end quotes. But Hindman at 79 in 1921 publicly advocated an Irish republic. At the time of the rising, Hindman in justice, while maintaining solidarity in the war against German militarism, explained Connolly with sympathy and justice carried James Connolly and appreciation on page one by the Hindmanite John Leslie, who had recruited Connolly to the organisation in Edinburgh. But the SDF saw the UK as the most advanced capitalism and advancing to socialism and tried to push it further along that advance. Modern post-1914 internationalism is not the sum total of the nationalisms added and subtracted, but the international as a single whole, the world and the world division of labour as the basis of the possibility of socialist abundance in the fundamentals of life. Hindman, Condley and many others saw internationalism not as one entity of full worlds and a world division of labour as a basis of socialism, but as the existing divisions remaining and evolving section by section, empire by empire, relating equally to each part. Connolly had the same socialist conception for Ireland, a small speck of the world, which four and a half million people, as Hindman did for the whole British Empire. You could have argued that Hindman, with Hindman, that he should have always highlighted the abolition of the monarchy, the factor holding together the self-governing countries of the Euro of the empire, and some Marxists and all the communists did. He would have argued that other things equal, that was not fundamental, and in the circumstances focused on the abolitions of the monarchy would be more trouble than it was worth. Page... 7. To Hindman, the British Empire, meaning centrally the core that would become the dominions 
Australia, Canada, etc., was an entity and should be maintained and developed the most advanced capitalism in existence and therefore the nearest to socialism. Unraveling it was like unraveling a giant industrial and commercial conglomerate into its component parts. Small bourgeois, regressive in its hostility to the world economy and ultimately futile. Replacing Britain with Germany was at best marching to the bottom of the hill and then starting up again. The Hindmanites had their good Marxist reasons and a false, no longer adequate, idea of internationalism. So following them did Connolly. The pick and mix Connolly. Connolly went through a succession of political periods. He was straight SDF at the start. He became a de Leonite critic of the mainstream Marxists. That brought him to industrial unionism, which he would never renounce, though he would criticise it not long before he died in old wine in new bottles. In 1908, he left the de SLP for the much more open and eclectic Socialist Party of America of Gene Debs, and simultaneously for the IWW in its post Diolan phase. In return to Ireland, he worked with the Socialist Party of Ireland in 1910 and the Irish Transport Union, over time effectively abandoning, abandoning the SBI in favour of the Union. He moved to competing with the Home Rule Party on behalf of Labour and a party of Labour which would face off against the Home Rule Party in a future Irish Parliament. He adopted the Home Rule Party's conception of a Home Rule dependence essentially on British coercion of Irish Protestants. He was a a Basley Manifesto anti-war socialist for the first three weeks or so in World War I then a heavily pro-German propagandist in line with the Irish Republican Brotherhood, while simultaneously unfriendly to the war and as a socialist anti-war man for Karl Liebknecht. He came to support the German pro-war majority SPD position on the war and was an advocate and practitioner of insurrection on IRB lines. That is an outline of James Connolly's career, that whole career can, so to speak, be laid out one position side by side with another, one different emphasis side by side with another, to pick and mix from, to concoct your own. James Connolly. But then you get a concocted James Connolly, not the real living, adapting, evolving Connolly. Connolly was a socialist. He went to the far ends of physical force republicanism, so his republicanism and socialism came to be seen as one for always. That became especially true for Trotskyists with visions of Ireland in terms of permanent revolution, which confused everything, amalgamating the intense nationalism of the Catholic people with socialism, and included that strange idea that this intense nationalism could conquer and win to itself Protestant anti-nationalist Thailand. Connolly was a nationalist, albeit a Labour Party, after, 19, after August 1914, 
and he died as a nationalist and a renewed or born-again extreme unction man and a proselytising Catholic. Shauna Casey, the future playwright, a Dublin working-class Protestant socialist and first secretary of the Irish Citizen Army, was right when he said that Ireland had not gained a socialist martyr in James Connolly. The nationalists of Ireland had gained an adherence. Quotes, the vision of the suffering world's humanity was shadowed by the nearest oppression of his own people, and in a few brief brief months pressed into a hidden corner of his soul the accumulated thoughts of a lifetime and opened his broad heart to ideas that altered the entire trend of his being. The high creed of Irish nationalism became his daily rosary, while the higher creed of internationalist humanity that had so long bubbled from his eloquent lips was silent forever, and Irish labour lost a leader. A well-known author has declared that Connolly was the first martyr for Irish socialism, but Connolly was no more an Irish socialist martyr than Robert Emmett, PHPS, or Theobald's Wolf Tone, end quotes. Still, Connolly's writings of a lifetime could be laid out together to be picked and mixed and express not the whole Connolly, but the thoughts of the picker and mixer. His pro-Leibnacht and pro-German periods could be mixed and merged with Irish war and Britain and British imperialism, and Connolly could be presented as an anti-imperialist of the Bursley or Lenin sort. I did that myself decades ago before the Provo War in Socialist Worker, 4th of December 1969. The Evolving Connolly Connolly juggled with two stable elements which were not at any moment equally effective, nationalism and class, but could have different forms, both could have different forms. Nationalism was constant, always there, never absent in his writings, and often there is some chauvinism against the other Irish, presented as opposition to British imperialism, but in fact nationalist self-righteousness above and beyond that. Whatever it was, Irish nationalism was anti-imperialism. Irish Protestants, British nationalism was always, anti- was always imperialist. Class was constant too, the gut identification with his own people. That took different forms. It was the socialism of the Socialist International, the more selective socialism of De Leon, the looser socialism of Eugene Debs. Simultaneously, it was the apolitical and industrial union socialism of the IWW. Connolly was a syndicalist, a believer in industrial unionism, though never a narrow anti-political syndicalist. He modified that usefully after the labour war and never abandoned it. But his Marxism was two-dimensional. In two of his three disputes was Daniel de Leon in 1904. He was wrong, or anyway out of line with other Marxists. Back in Ireland from 1910, he joined Jim Larkin in, in expecting home rule and developed a home rule reform policy, an activity aimed at the expected Dublin government. Connolly would, 
and this is a very important as against metaphysical nationalists, list what he warns the British Labour Party to try to get the Liberal government to insist on for Home Rule Ireland, for instance, payment for MPs. In the Home Rule crisis that became acute in 1913-14, Connolly explicitly adopted the Home Rule Party policy and tried to prosecute it militantly, which meant advocating British prosecutes it militantly. Ultimately, against the Home Rule Party and against following the Home Rule Party's concession, concessions to the Protestants, he offered no modifications and stood on the old, unalterable Home Rule Party policy of the Catholic majority. Only coercion of the Protestants of the North East and that by the British government could have hoped to outmatch their resistance. Both Irish factions, Orange and Green, looked to their British allies, Unionist and Liberal respectively, to coerce the other Irish. Faced with difficult opposition and open rebellion, a Unionist provisional government was being prepared in Ulster. The Liberal government betrayed its Irish allies. Some of the Home Rule Party responded to the Orange Revolt with offers of concessions, though that was under pressure too late and too obscurely. In November 1913, John Redmond proposed, quotes, Home Rule within Home Rule for the North East within Ireland. In early 1914, William O'Brien, MP of the All for Ireland League, which had split from the Home Rule Party when Joseph Devlin and the AOH took control in 1909, proposed that for five years Ulster representatives should have a veto on any measure of the Home Rule Parliament unless confirmed by Westminster, and that the North East should be systematically overrepresented in the Home Rule Parliament in the Times 29 January 1914. There were no specific Labour movement proposals of that sort, and none from James Connolly, that I've ever heard about. Probably that would have been seen as nationalist weakness. Connolly pointed out that no British Parliament could bind another that far ahead, but proposed nothing instead except British coercion. He was intent on being a better home ruler, in fact a better chauvinist of Catholic Nationalist Ireland than the Home Rule Party itself. The only real alternative to the partition proposal was some variant of Home Rule within Home Rule. The proclamation of 1916 could speak of gallant allies in Europe, the Germans, but had nothing to say on Irish unity. Here too James Connolly played the demagogue. Connolly pressed for the full and undiluted Catholic Nationalist Home Rule programme and for British coercion of North East Irish Protestants to get it. The Irish Worker was in fact a sectarian Catholic newspaper. There are many examples, for instance, sympathetic reportage on the affairs of the papacy as our affair, but one ex example is sufficient. There was a second, smaller not anti-labour movement AOH. It had existed like the more anti-labour movement AOH 
Board of Erin to promote Catholic sense Protestants' expense. It had a weekly column signed AOH in the Irish Worker, not continued in Workers' Republic. Yet there were Protestants in the Labour movement. Connolly and Larkin competed directly with the Home Rule Party on the same nationalist political agenda. They lost heavily. At first they competed in the name of Labour and the Labour movement 1913-14 and then in the name of the IRB and nationalism. What changed realities, possibilities, perspectives was the World War. It brought Connolly's third element to centre stage, a hostility to Britain rooted in Irish history but seemingly an absolute hostility publicly absent or sometimes even renounced before the war, and now linked with an insurrectionism he had earlier dismissed. The Constructions of Connellyism It has long been known that Connolly presented a blurred, ambivalent, even a contradictory image in Irish history that was largely the work of Connellyists, Connellyites, who came after Connolly not something he had done himself deliberately. That Connolly went with the IRB was a fact of 1916, but what was the relationship then of socialism to nationalism? 1916 was nationalist, but was it socialist also, or incipiently socialist? Did Connolly say what William O'Brien reported him saying before the Citizen Army went on Easter Monday, quotes, In the event of victory, hold on to your rifles, as those with whom we are fighting may stop before our goal is reached. We are out for economic as well as political liberty. Going on to page 8. End quotes. And if so, what did it mean? In later tellings, he was the first and foremost the patriotic insurrectionist who, in 1916, had risen against near-hopeless odds at the heart of the greatest empire ever seen to lay the foundation of the independent Irish state that coloured everything else. It was not so widely known that he was military commander of the Rising, the main man was said to be Peirce. Connolly was also a Labour leader. He was a Catholic. The Labour movement competed to make him its own. So did the Catholic Church. So did the legal nationalists. So did the Republicans. A bit of Connolly could be used to promote most things, even the Gaelic language, even the Catholic Church. In Catholic Ireland, he was a protean political and social force without compare. The man for all seasons and the joker in the illegal and semi-legal Republican pack. De Valera, on becoming leader of the 26th County State in 1932, proclaimed himself nearer to Connolly than to any other 1916 leader. In power, De Valera did not act that way. After the revolutionary period, the first collection of articles by Connolly to be published was a Socialist in War, edited by P.J. Musgrove, who had studied in Moscow. It was published by the Communist Parties early in 1941, during the first few months of the 22-month Hitler-Stalin Pact, 
and distributed in Ireland then in this aspect of the Stalinist pro-German policy. Into this confusion of those times were thrown most of Connolly's articles supporting Germany in World War I. Then in June 1941, Britain and the USA became Russia's allies and Germany its evil and poisonous enemy. Given James Connolly's deliberate contradictions and obfuscations, they had to be deliberate, and given their many Irish claims to Connolly as a national or Catholic or variegated left hero and champion, no coherence policy could or can emerge from any constructed James Connolly tradition. Nor can a benign, sincere and non-hysterical labour movement policy or a coherent policy on the question of the relationship between Catholic nationalist majority and Protestant unionist majority in Ireland. Back to page 5. Workers' Republic of 4th of December 1915 printed a eulogy for the Kaiser as a straight report without comment. Fendrick was not in fact a socialist leader, but a semi-detached maverick even by SPD standards. Kaiser and Socialists, San Francisco Call, Berlin, October 15. A sensation is being caused by the book At the Front in an Auto, published by the South German socialist Anton Fendrick. The author is the first social democrat who obtained an interview with the Kaiser, and he shows the ruler in a new light. The author says the monarch has completely changed his views in regard to socialists, and now considers them splendid fellows, at least most of them. Quotes, I had a long talk with the Chancellor, Dr. von Bethmann Holweg, the socialist leader writes, continue quotes, he must have informed the emperor of our conversation because the next morning when I went to leave the town in which the imperialist quarters were I was informed the Kaiser wished to see me. The official, a councillor of the legation who summoned me explained that I should come just as I was without dressing up. I was led through a small park. On my way a sentient stopped me but the soldier quickly withdrew and he saw the adjutant who had received me at the gate of the park. On a bench under a group of large trees, I found the emperor and the chancellor in an earnest conversation. When the kaiser saw me, he rose quickly. Walking towards me, he extended his hand. Never has a friend given me a warmer and more cordial handshake than this mighty monarch, whom I had never met before. I felt at once that the ruler would talk to me without reserve as man to man and that there were no necessity to try to fathom his thoughts. I'm guarded by socialists. The Kaiser told me he had read with interest my pamphlets of the war, its causes and the stands of the German social democracy. Do you know who guards me here in the enemy's country, he asked. As I could not answer his question, he continued, I'm guarded by the socialists because the garrison of this town consists almost entirely of social democrats, and they are splendid fellows, all of them. 
During these introductory remarks, I had a chance to study the man in Rulo who stands in the centre of the world wall. I looked into a pair of clear blue eyes, glowing like molten steel, and I saw a remarkably fresh and youthful face without a wrinkle. Only the crow's, crow's feet <coughs> around the eyes of the monarch and his hair, which is almost white at the temple, showed his age. Otherwise, there was nothing of the careworn picture that this had has been exhi exhibited in the show windows of the stores during the last few months. The elastic figure in high tan riding boots and the tight-fitting light wicks, which was not even decorated with a single order, expressed force and determination in every move. The, the Kaiser talks freely when he unbosoms himself, like all men of active mind and strong individuality. Never before in my life have I had such a lot of thoughts and suggestions covering all subjects showered upon me as during my two hours talk with the monarch. We talked over many things, but our conversation always had some relation to the war in one way or another. The strongest impression I received was that of the sincerity of the Kaiser's love for peace. I am convinced now, more firmly than ever, that he tried to avert the war up to the last minute and almost jeopardised the safety of the Empire by his efforts to prevent the awful conflict. I also noticed his bitter disappointment over the actions of his relatives in England and Russia who turned against him when he expected their help to maintain peace. Nobody can expect that the views of the Kaiser are those of a radical or socialist, but there's no doubt that he understands the aims of the radical left in Parliament far better and has more sympathies for them than the world knows.